he's one of my, no, he is, no, yeah, he is my best friend. He's a, a covenant brother in the Lord who I've had the opportunity to learn, uh, learn from and be friends with for the past couple years now. I actually met him uh, working with Lou Angle. He used to be Lou's assistant, and he is now, he's been with the International House of Prayer for about eight months now. Um, but he's actually traveling, or actually moving, once he gets married, back to South Carolina to start a house of prayer uh, with the call. And so he is, uh, so if any of you want to check it out, he's going to be working with the call, and they're going to start a house of prayer in South Carolina with Lou, and it's going to be amazing. And um, Brian is an amazing young man, my best friend, and uh, I consider him a mentor in some ways because I go to him for advice all the time. And he is, he is definitely wise beyond his years, and he's going to be speaking on Daniel and he is a, a young man who really exemplifies the Daniel lifestyle. He's one of the smartest um, young adults I've ever met in my life. He can tell you anything you want to know. And, uh, but he just he walks in humility and meekness and has a genuine love for Jesus and wants Jesus to be exalted above everything else. So, Brian, come up here. I won't say anything else. Just know that he's an amazing, amazing man who I love and will be friends with the rest of my life. Appreciate it, Brett. Thank you, Terry. I'm going to have Samuel Hood come up and pray for me, too. I don't know how many people were in Alan Hood's last session. It's a show of hands. I think Alan, in some ways, did a disservice to me by going first. I, I was telling Corey before we started here today, before Alan started, I don't understand why they put the appetizer after the full, full main course. Because if you heard Alan's word, I had to walk out because I didn't want to get distracted because I was so intently listening to everything Alan said. I didn't even necessarily prepare everything that was in my heart just to say to you guys today. So I had to walk out for a few minutes just to process because what he was saying was so profound. I didn't want my own thoughts to get all jumbled up and mixed up because it's just the things that he said. So it's just, but, but Alan had his son Samuel Hood pray for him, and I won't pinch your butt, Samuel, but <laughs> he had his son Samuel pray for him, and when he, when, he ha when he had him do that, there was a profound sense of sobriety that struck my heart because my mentor, Lou Engel, one of his key uh, mandates in life is what he calls generational transfer. It's the, what he calls the spirit of Elijah. It's turning the hearts of the fathers to children and turning the hearts of the children to the fathers. And when I see Samuel Hood, every time I see him grab a microphone or every time I see him in the prayer room, there's a sense of sobriety in my heart for two reasons. One, I know that the army of the Lord is being trained at a young age. Far younger than even we were trained. My generation, I'm only 24 years old then we were trained as a young people. But I'm looking at an, an army trained at a young age that know how to pray and fast and study the word. They've given us an advantage in the spirit realm. They really have given us an advantage in the spirit realm. And there was a sense of sobriety in my heart as Alan was speaking for things, that there was a responsibility on our generation to cultivate and nurture and live something out as a testimony for his generation. When I look at Samuel, it provokes me unto God, not just because he's living a godly lifestyle at the age of 12, I think, or 13, 11. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about Daniel in a little while, and I'm going to mention some age differences and things like that. But when I look at Samuel Hood, I, I see something coming on the horizon that's so profound that I don't even know what to do with myself yet. And there's a responsibility on us a generation of leaders, because this is a leadership track. I'm going to talk to leaders specifically, but a generation of leaders to cultivate something in their generation. I know uh, Lenny says this all the time, and I don't even know why I'm going off in this tangent. But children's ministry is not a hobby. It's not a good idea. We're raising up a generation to contend 
in these last days. So I want Samuel Hood to pray for me because when he prays, there's always power on it. No matter how quiet, he could pray like a mouse with the voice of a mouse. But I always feel the presence of God on my body even. So I just want, I wanted Samuel to pray for me. He prayed for his dad, so I thought his dad could preach like that. So hopefully Samuel can rub off on me. You've taught your dad a lot, man. God, I just asked for Brian that you would come, God, that he would speak the word of the Lord. And as he speaks on Daniel, that there would be more than just hitting our hearts, God, that we would live as Daniel walked, God, that you would even come now, God, you would teach us your ways, God, through Brian even now, that the word of the Lord would go forth, God, that he wouldn't speak the words of his mouth, he would speak the very word of the Lord, God, and that even now you would teach us your ways, God, as Daniel walked, God, we want to walk that way, God. So even now as he speaks, God, that we would hit our hearts and penetrate our hearts and that we would, there would be a change, God, in our lifestyle, God. So even now, God, come to us, that he would speak the word of the Lord and it would go forth, God, with power and, and anointing, God. So even now, God, come to him, that he would speak the word of the Lord. Amen. I'm going to be speaking. I'm going to be speaking out of the book of Daniel today because I believe that Daniel provides a compelling portrait of leadership in these last days. And I know if you were in Allen's session, I don't want to belabor a point, but I believe truly that we are living in the last days, whether we are the generation to see the Lord's return or our children or our children's children or our children's children's children. I believe that one of these generations will bring in and will usher in the second coming of Christ. So when I look at the book of Daniel, I don't look at it as something simply an anomaly, that Daniel is one of a kind. When I look at the book of Daniel, I see a compelling portrait of a lifestyle that is to be lived by an entire generation. I know there is a prophetic voice in our land who said something like this, that in the last days, the generation is going to learn to fast, the Daniel fast. Not out of convenience, but out of necessity. I believe that we are entering into a season of history so cataclysmic that it's going to be... That Daniel, the book of Daniel, the lifestyle of Daniel portrayed is the only thing that's going to settle our heart for the coming storm. And so I, I wanted to open up, I, you know, I, I told them I'd speak on leadership or they asked me to speak on leadership and they said, where do you want to speak out of? And I said, I'll speak out of the book of Daniel. And I didn't have any idea what I was going to speak out of. And I thought, you know, the last week. I'm going to just be praying and fasting, but then the last week, I'm going to search out the word and really find what the Lord wants me to speak on. And then I got hit with this cold. It seems like a lot of people are being hit with this cold. So I wasn't able to necessarily give myself because I was just coughing and, you know, sinus congestion, sinus congestion and all that stuff. And I thought I was going to speak out of Daniel 1, but I stepped out of the room when Alan was speaking today. And I felt like the Lord wanted me to speak out of Daniel 5. And I've never spoken out of Daniel 5 before. I've spoken out of Daniel 1 numerous times, but I've never spoken out of Daniel 5 before. And I know I'm breaking a rule among many preachers. They always say, don't preach something that's new to you. Preach something that's already been in your heart. But I just felt like the Lord dropped something into my spirit out of Daniel 5. And I'm going to give you a picture, a portrait of a man who lived faithfully before the Lord disciplined before the Lord and continued until the first year of Cyrus, over 66 years, a man continued and stayed steady in one place. But I want to start near the end of the story, and then we'll work our way back and go forward again. But I wanted to start at a Daniel 5 near the end because I just feel like there's something profoundly spoken by a pagan king over Daniel that I wanted to mention to you guys first. But I'm going to start from verse 1. 
And I'm going to read the entire chapter, or, or, or at least half of the chapter. And I know a lot of today, you know, preachers, they don't read much of the Bible anymore when they're preaching. They'll read one or two verses and then go into their stories and their illustrations. But I want, to, I want every leader in this room to understand something. What you have in front of you is not simply a book. It's not the book, it's not the words of Shakespeare, it's not the words of Charles Dickens, it's not the words of Jane Austen. It is the word of God and as such it should be treated as such. Every time I come to the word, I'm trying to come with a trembling in my heart. It says in Isaiah 66 that there's a trembling in the heart of God and in the heart of man who are friends of God. It's so easy for us as leaders, as church leaders or business leaders or whatever in, the, in our community. It's so easy for us to come to a place where we no longer read scripture as the word of God, but some history textbook. But you have to understand that what you have in front of you, the book that you have in front of you, is not simply a book. It is the word of God, and as such, it should be treated as such. Every time you open up the word, every time you open up the word, you should come with trembling in your heart. It says in Psalm 119, verse 18, open up my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. I am a stranger in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from me. Every time I, pray, I read the word, I try and come with that. Open up my eyes, God. I want to see wondrous things from your law. And then right after that, it says, my soul breaks with longing. It is crushed with longing for your judgment at all times, for your word at all times. When was the last time the word of God that caused your soul and your spirit to be crushed? When David or whoever the psalmist is in Psalm 119 says that my spirit or my, my heart is crushed with longing for his judgment at all times. It's not hyperbole. The psalmist understood something and he said, my soul is crushed with longing for your judgment at all times. Friends, when was the last time your soul was crushed with longing? For his word at all times. I venture to say that if you do not remember the last time your soul was crushed with longing for God, you have not yet read the word of God. The issue of the matter is not that the word of God is boring. It has nothing to do with boredom. If you're bored with the word of God, it's because you still not have, have not yet believed that the words that you are reading in front of you are the present tense word of God. It's present tense. It's completely applicable to this day and age. It's completely applicable to your life right now. I don't know why I'm going off on this tangent so long. But I just feel as leaders, it's so important that when we approach the word of God, we approach it as such and not something else. Don't read it as a history textbook. Somebody was talking to me today about a man named Soren Kierkegaard, a philosopher, a Danish philosopher. And he was quoting me something, and I'm not going to get this verbatim, but he said something to the effect of, we read 25 commentaries seeking out a single truth or seeking out some great revelation that we can inspire people with. But we hardly ever read the word itself. The word of God is not simply something to give you a tingle up and down your spine. It's a call to action. It's a call to a lifestyle. And so we're going to read this book. And we're going to read Daniel 5. And I don't care if you get bored. Just stay with me. I promise. It's a compelling picture. The word of God can speak for itself. There's nothing more profound that I can add to, add to it. There's no comments or statements that I can make. There's no one-liners that I can say that will add more to the word of God than is already in it. So I'm going to start at verse 1, and it says, Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. 
While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God, which had been in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of God and gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. In the same hour, the finger of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite of the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance changed, and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosened, and his knees knocked against each other. Like I told you, I've not read this whole thing in, in detail, because I just, the Lord dropped it in my spirit. And I might stop here now, because the Lord says something to me, but I just feel like even right there, throughout the entire book of Daniel, if there's any chaos, any fear, and any confusion, it has nothing to do with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. It has all to do with the kings and the governors that are set over them. You see, there's two themes that I think are really important, prescient for this day and age, for this generation to understand about that the book of Daniel makes clear and compelling. One is the sovereignty of God, that God moves in the affairs of men. And that he can do whatever he wants. And number two, it's the response of man as God is on the move. You see, and when God begins to move over the kings and the governors, it's not Daniel's knees that are knocking unless the Lord is appearing to him himself or an angel of the Lord. It's not Daniel's knees that are knocking and his hands trembling and sweat forming upon his brow. If there's any chaos, confusion, or fear in the book of Daniel, it has nothing to do with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Let's get that clear from the start because there's something coming that I believe... Alan was talking about in the last session about messengers that are arising in this day and age, men and women who are cultivating their lifestyle in the wilderness, who are going to present themselves before kings and be killed for their very words because there's power on their words and conviction that cuts to the heart. That's the place of Daniel all throughout. There's no fear and trembling, and you'll see it later in this book. Verse 7, the king cried aloud, to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. It seems like Darius forgot something. He forgot what his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had already known, that a name, man named Daniel, or Belteshazzar, when they named him uh, with a pagan name, but a man named Daniel had already gone through a similar scenario. When a king said, bring before me the astrologers, the musicians, the soothsayers, the psychics. Bring them before me. And listen, that is the day and age that we are living in today. As leaders, we have to understand that this is the day and age that we are living in today. People are asking all around the nations, who has the answer to the void that humanity is constantly feeling? The throbbing ache in the heart of humanity. Who has the answer? Some people are finding it in Islam and Buddhism and other Eastern religions. Other are, others of us in America are finding it in materialism and secularism and academics. We're feeding our own egos and our pride. 
But there's an understanding that we have to have that's coming to the body of Christ that is far beyond anything we can wish or imagine. God is looking to us to bring in the answer to the people. So this is the same question that the world is asking us today. Who can interpret the signs and the times, the seasons that we live in? It says, verse 8, now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. Now, commentators say all different kinds of things. Some people think it's his wife, or some people think it's Nebuchadnezzar's, it's Nebuchadnezzar's wife, so his mom or his grandma. That's not the point here, but the queen is coming in because she already knows of a man named Daniel. And the very next verse is something that I want you guys to, to focus in on because I know as leaders, one of the main things that we're taught all the time is to have a spirit of excellence. But I'm going to tweak this a little bit. Because in the very next verse, it says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Verse 12, and this is the key that links it to 11. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in Daniel. Now it says, inasmuch as an excellent spirit. And I've heard preachers before say that the book of Daniel is where it tells us to have a spirit of excellence. That in everything we do, we need to have our I's dotted and our T's crossed. That we need to know where every light bulb in the church is. So that if one of the lights go out, we can quickly change it. To them, that's a spirit of excellence. But I think, and, and forgive me for the term that I'm going to use. I can't think of anything else right now in my mind. I think that bastardizes what God is trying to say. That is a spirit of excellence. It says in verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. How many of you can say that about your friends today? The ones that you're sitting next to can truly say, in that man is somebody who's living the spirit of the holy God. And I know in the generic sense, yes, God, Christ lives inside of us. And I believe that wholeheartedly. But there was something that set Daniel apart from the rest of Israel, from the rest of the Jews. And it was said of this man, even in Ezekiel 14, when Daniel is probably only 27 years old, he's in the same He's in the same lineup as Job and Abraham, I think. I think it's Abraham. I know it's Job. But he's in the same lineup as men who are be of righteousness. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining the enigmas were found in this Daniel, we need to reorient ourselves around what is truly the spirit of excellence or what is truly an excellent spirit. It doesn't even say spirit of excellence. It says an excellent spirit. What made Daniel have excellence in his very being? And I'm going to try and get practical with you guys in a few minutes. But what made Daniel excellent? What caused them to use that descriptive adjective to explain David, uh, Daniel. It's in verse 11. In whom is the spirit of the holy God? Friends, today, that is the, the dying need of leadership today. 
that in us would dwell the spirit of the holy God, that God would find a resting place in our hearts, that he would no longer have to strive with us because of our sinfulness, that he would no longer have to strive with us because of our disobedience, that he would no longer have to strive with us because we don't want to obey the word of God. Friends, the dying need of leadership in the church today is not another church growth mechanic. The dying need of leadership today is not even leadership development itself. The dying need of the church today is to have churches filled with men and women who has the spirit of the holy God dwelling inside of them. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the captives from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? And that in and of itself is interesting. I was sitting on this and I was thinking, why is Daniel called Daniel here and not Belteshazzar? The pagan name that Nebuchadnezzar gave to him. At this point in Daniel's teenage years, up until this point when he's about 60, or in his 60s, Daniel has lived such a consistent lifestyle of being a Hebrew or a Jew that I think the king knows better than to call him Belteshazzar. The king knows better than to call him Belteshazzar. He understands that the spirit of the holy God lives inside of him. So Daniel is not referred to as as Belteshazzar the same way Esther takes her pagan name instead of taking her Jewish name, Hadassah. But here, Daniel is, is named Daniel. It's not Belteshazzar. And that's a profound statement today. For us today in this day and age, something happened over these 40, 50 years that we're going to bring out in Daniel 1. Now, verse, and I'm going to jump down to verse 17. And he said, this is what gets me. And this is the, the verse that jumped out at me. And it's not going to even be all that cool or, or great sounding. But it's the verse that jumped out at me. That this is our destiny, friends. As messengers, as Alan was talking about before, as leaders in the body of Christ, this is our destiny. That when we are presented before kings, there's no fear or trepidation in our heart to deliver the word of the Lord. And he says, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Listen, Daniel did not need to be seduced by the wares of the world. He didn't need to be seduced with more authority. He didn't have an, a bone of ambition, of ungodly ambition inside of him. So many of us today, for you church leaders today, our burden is how can we grow our church to a thousand? And then from that point, reach a tipping point and grow it to five thousand. And we see numbers, statistics, quantities as our end goal. But Daniel, he refuses it. Listen, a generation of leaders is going to have to learn to say no. Learn it. Two letters, N-O, no. Babylon has so many options. Persia has so many options. But somebody has to refuse. Somebody has to refuse. And it says in Jeremiah that God is going to raise up a generation of shepherds after his own heart, according to his own heart. 
But somebody's got to say no. We got to grow a backbone that when temptation and pressure is bearing down upon a generation, when, when all of the seductions are being presented to us, are we going to be able to say no? Listen, there is such a deception that is soon to come to the body of Christ that there's going to be so much model in the middle that we're no longer going to even know what is right and wrong. A generation is going to forget what is right and wrong. And in that context, a man is going to rise that's going to completely deceive that generation and cause millions, the masses of people, to take a mark. And I don't even know why I'm going into this, but I believe that there is something that we need to learn from Daniel in this day and age. He is a portrait. He's an invitation. He's not an anomaly. He's not one of a kind. He's giving to us something, tools. Not just to survive. Not just simply to survive. And listen, that is something that we need. <laughs> I was in a church recently and I was talking to their youth. And a burden came upon my heart so strong because I feel like an entire generation has only learned how to survive. That we as leaders have failed because we've taught a generation, teenagers today, just how to survive. If you do this and this and this, hopefully you'll make it through high school. And then the real test comes, friends, is what they're telling their youth. And hopefully you make it through college. But the statistics show us today that not many are surviving outside of high school. Not many are surviving outside of college today. The reason we're failing is because we've taught them just how to survive instead of to succeed in the kingdom of God. So flip back with me to Daniel 1. I know I'm all over the place. I told you I didn't know where I was going. I'm going to read more of the scripture. I'm sure nobody's going to complain now after my brief exhortation in the beginning. But verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Listen, this is not trouble in paradise. This is not just a significant downturn of events. This is total annihilation. Complete destruction. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. And we see this in Daniel 5. In verse 3, then the kings instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the noble descendants and of some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles. Young men in whom there was no blemish, but good looking. <laughs> Thank you very much. Gifted in all wisdom possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. You see, listen, because the verse, first two verses are so terse, the terseness of God's word, we might think that, you know, all things are peachy. As I said, it's not just trouble in paradise or it's not a significant downturn of events. 
These are dark days for the Jewish people. But from this context, four young men are, are singled out in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you have to understand in that context, in that historical context, when you were sacked, when a city was sacked, it was a, it was a sign that your God had been defeated and that there were more powerful gods. So Daniel already has this pressure as a young man, maybe 14, 15, 16, 17 year old, years old at most. This man, or this young boy in a sense, is brought into a kingdom to serve in another man's, temp- another man's house. And Daniel has come to a place where he needs to decide whether or not he believes that the word of God is true, that there is only one God, and his name is Yahweh. Even in the midst of overwhelming defeat, Daniel has to reckon and has to come to a place where he's able to reconcile. Why has Israel, or why has the Jewish people been brought into captivity? You see, Daniel is a Hebrew prophet in exile. Not just in exile, but in utter captivity. He's taken out of his land and he's brought into another man's kingdom to serve there. But he heard the cadence of home. Even at the young age of 14, 15, 16, or 17, Daniel heard the cadence of home. And that is our understanding today that we need to have as a people. We need to hear the cadence of home that we're not living for this age. We're not living for a way. How, what's the quickest way to success? That's not the mentality that we're meant to have. Daniel isn't thinking, what's the best way that I can succeed in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? Daniel heard the cadence of home, and it resonated in his heart, and he did not let go. Now from, among those sons of, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. And verse 8 is the key verse to me in all of the book of Daniel 1. And it says, but Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel purposed in his heart. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies. Nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now for those of us that don't know the book of Daniel that well, we're thinking, what is his big deal? Why won't he eat from the king's table? Lobster primavera and all these great things that Daniel could finally eat that he wasn't able to eat in Judah and Israel. What is his big deal? But Daniel understood the context that he lived in, that he had to refuse. He was a man that learned to say no. Even at the young age of 14, and most of us are over that age, in this room at least, But even as a young man, this is, to me, when I read the book of Daniel, when I read Daniel chapter 1, I take it as a rebuke. That even at the age of 24, I've still not learned to say no to the king's delicacies, to the seductions and wares of this world. And listen, friends, the seduction and wares of this world is not simply out there in the world. It's entered into the church today, too. 
We think we're safe in our bubbles. It's, we're not safe any longer, friends. The same thing, the same things that plague the church or the, that plague the world today now plague us. And I'm not even talking about the egregious sins or the obvious sins of sexual immorality. I'm not talking about, you know, or, or the obvious things of, of thievery or those kinds of things. I'm talking about the subtle movements of our hearts towards selfish ambition. Toward pride. The lusts of the flesh. The desires of this world. That we can make a name for ourselves. Listen, the most seductive force in the body of Christ is not Hollywood. It's not Washington, D.C. The most seductive force in the body of Christ is the church itself. We offer book deals and platforms and speaking engagements and ministry trips. And a, a way to make a name for ourselves. Daniel shunned all of that. And he says there's a different wisdom. There is a different understanding that I need to feed myself from. That my father's taught me. He, hate, he heeded the words of Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. He heeded their words. And understand, yes. We are under chastisement right now, serious chastisement. But I know that if I remain faithful in this place, an entire people group will have their jailbreak. That's what I'm contending for today, that an entire people group will have a jailbreak, that a generation bound in sin and licentiousness would be freed Not just through our prayers, but our very lifestyles. And it says, Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food for and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over them, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. And at the end of ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Listen, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they didn't do it the way of the world. They did it the way of the kingdom in the midst of the University of Babylon. In the midst of the University of Babylon, some of you college students are in here, leaders of campus ministries. You think, I can't do this. There's so much pressure bearing down upon me. But even in that context, Daniel understood that there was a different wisdom that he needed to uh, lean upon. It's a clash of two wisdoms. In 1 Corinthians, it says that there are not many wise, not many noble, not many strong. But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise or the wise. The things that are nothing to nullify the things that are. Listen, when will Christianity once again become what it once was, foolish and dangerous? 
You can't choose one or the under if you, other. If you want to be dangerous, there's a foolishness that we need to embrace. There is a wisdom that we need to embrace. As leaders with all the temptations to grow our ministries, to grow our businesses, and to do all these other things that are good under the right context. But from that context, are we able to withstand the pressure that bears down upon us, not to do it God's way, but to do it our own way. Not to trust on the wisdom of God, but to trust in our own flesh and our own understanding. It's a clash of two wisdoms. But the answer is this, and at the end of 10 days, their features appeared better. And fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. Thus the steward took away their portion of delicacies and the wine that they were given to drink and gave them vegetables. And I want to jump down to verse 20. And it says, in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the kings examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in his realm. Ten times better. Underline it. Bold it. Highlight it if you don't have it highlighted in your Bible. Ten times better. Because they chose a different wisdom. And verse 21, other than verse 8 to me, is the second key verse in all of Scripture in, in, or all of, all of Daniel. It's Daniel 121. It says, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. And for some of us who don't have much Bible knowledge like me, we think King Cyrus, well, maybe that was 5, 10 years. No, that was 66 years that Daniel remained in the place of prayer and fasting. I remember being a young boy and saying, God, I want to be like King David. God, I want to be like Daniel. God, I want to be like John the Baptist. And that's still true of me today. But I don't enter with the same naivete that it's going to come overnight. I understand that these men live something out in hiddenness. And they, understand th they understood this principle that is only faithfulness that produces fruitfulness. If I could leave you with one statement today, it would be that. That only faithfulness will produce fruitfulness. The only job that we have, friends, the only real thing that we have to learn to do is say no. Babylon has so many options, but somebody has to refuse. So I want to pray for you guys, anybody that wants to be prayed for, that, that, that feels like they want, that are struggling in a sense as leaders to live in that place of faithfulness. And I'm not saying that you're living in egregious sin or such obvious sin, but that there are subtle movements in your heart that the temptations and the pressures are bearing down upon you. I want to pray for you guys today. So if you guys, if that's you and then... I don't want to go into traditional, just uh, altar ministry mindset. I just want to get this thing done and dealt with right here. I want to pray for you guys right now. If, if that's you, just stand up. Don't hesitate. Let's just stand up. Father, here we are before you. Lord, and we thank you for the privilege to stand before your throne today. 
We thank you for the privilege that we would be called to leadership, Father, in this nation and in the body of Christ today. Lord, and we do not hold that lightly, Father. We understand that is a, is a weighty matter that you have entrusted to us. So, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today, for myself that are standing, God. And for those that are seating, sitting, Lord, I ask you today, God, that you would break into our lives in a profound way, Father. That you would enable us by your grace to live this lifestyle that Daniel lived. 66 years, Father, three times a day, it says in Daniel 6.10. Three times a day as it was his custom since his youth. Father, I ask for that testimony to be made true of my life in the day that is to come, God. That it would be said of me, God, that I was faithful in the place of devotion to the Lord, that I did not give into the temptations and seductions of this world. Friends, I don't, I don't even want to touch this concept. I wasn't going to. But I want to say something to you today. I look at what happened to our brother Ted Haggard. I look at what happened across the body of Christ, the fear that struck all of our hearts when we heard that. And some of you guys might have pointed the finger and you. I knew there was something off with that guy. I am not pointing the finger at no man. I know the weaknesses of my own heart. I know the pride and the ambition and the pressures that bear down upon me. But friends, we're going, to be have able, we're going to have to be able to withstand that kind of pressure and then some. I don't point the finger at, brother, at Ted Haggard at all. He's our brother and our friend. We need to be girding him up in prayer and ask God to fully restore him. That the last days of his ministry would be even more fruitful than the first days. We need to stop pointing the finger and examine our own lives. When something that happens like that, we need to begin to examine what's going on. What's God revealing in our own lives today? So, Father, we repent, God. We repent of our sinfulness, Lord. We call it what it is today, God. Selfish ambition, Father. It's not church growth mechanics, Father. It's sin. Lord, a bigger platform is not a blessing, not in the right context, Father. It's sin in our hearts, God. It cultivates pride. Father, we ask you today, God, that you will reorient our hearts, God, today. That when we are presented in those places, Father, we would go even lower still, Father. That we would be able to say that, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, my, I must decrease that he might increase. Father, I pray for wholesale humility to rest over our hearts, God, that you would do a quick work in our hearts today, that you would activate our hearts towards the place of humility. If it takes 60 years of beating our body into submission, Father, we ask you today, give us the grace, empower us. By your spirit today, in Jesus' name, thank you. We bless you, Lord. Amen. Bless you guys.